Hello and welcome to another episode of Triassic Park. A different type of episode because we've already talked about this movie uh, and the movie is Tremors. But when we talked about it originally, um, you know, just to say I dropped the ball a little bit and there are a lot more information available this time around uh the way i dropped the the ball is that there's an entire book called uh the, the making of perfection uh which was uh, you know extremely useful for this podcast and i read all of that um and it really kind of helped to you know to establish and to get a lot more information um and that was previously not available um, but I'm not doing this alone. Uh, joining me in this new format is Kyle. Hello, Kyle. Howdy. How's it going? It's going pretty good. So just to, just to start out, um, they kind of know, uh, sorry, the book is called Seeking Perfection, The Unofficial Guide to Tremors by, John, by Jonathan Melville. I just want to make sure I mention that. Uh, I'll stop. Um, but um, what is your relationship to the movie Tremors? Well, I grew up with it. I saw it a lot on cable. I rented it quite a few times, and the more I watched it, the more I loved it. Every single time I watched it, I feel like I learned something new about it, and I just, I just, I really like its ideas. I like its ideas as a horror movie. I like its ideas as a monster movie. I, I just, there's something about it I really appreciate. Like, the fact that all the horror in the, in the movie is in broad daylight. Uh, I love the characters. You really actually root for them and care for them. You want to see them try to survive. It really subverts a lot of horror movie tropes, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, that 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 is true. And, you know, part of the reason why I really wanted to revisit this and do the full treatment where I kind of went all in uh, is that there is so much to this movie that I, one, I bet you people don't know, and two, um, I definitely didn't know. And uh, I, I'm, I've been a huge fan of this franchise for years, and kind of learning and getting into the actual making of is, is pretty interesting. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with uh, talking about S.S. Wilson. He is one of the uh, script writers for this, and he's the one who actually came up with the idea, the initial idea for Tremors. So he, when he grew up, he had an 8mm camera, which was given to him by his father. He was a huge fan of Ray Harryhausen and was in all in on stop motion. Not a surprising fact. That kind of happens and is explained by every single person who makes a movie during this area. Ray Harryhausen was incredibly influential. But not everyone actually wrote a book about it. Uh, S.X. Wilson actually wrote a book called Puppets and People, Large Stale Animation in History. And, uh, you know, it, it seemed like he was well on his path to becoming a filmmaker. But when he went to uh, college, he was originally going to go for psychology. And in a really crazy uh, turn of events, it was his father that convinced him not to go as he pretty much told him that like you clearly love movies this is clearly your passion this is what you should do and i think that's one of the the weirdest things uh about this story is is you very very rarely hear supportive parents in terms of uh, of getting into to, to filmmaking and getting into the arts it's normally uh the the opposite uh effect i don't know what you think about that kyle mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very much uh, very much that. Yeah, I'm pretty used to the idea of the parents trying not to acknowledge the their kids' dreams. So that's amazing. 
Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And then, you know, uh, he, he, he somehow managed to, you know, he got drafted in the army in the 70s. And he managed to work in their film department. And he was say he, he said he was really lucky to get into the film department because he did awful during basic training. So, mm. I mean, um, he if you if you look at SS Wilson and you hear him talk and you go, oh, yeah, this is like a, a, a nerd ass nerd. So I kind of I kind of understand that. And I mean that with all sincerity. When he left the Navy in 1972, he actually went to the place that would eventually become USC. So this is not – this is before it was officially called USC, which is one of the most famous uh, film schools in in America and is almost always comes up, in, especially in terms of like George Lucas and stuff like that. They always bring up, oh, USC, blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. The film brats or whatever you to call them, that, that generation uh, met up. And uh, when as soon as he got there, that's when pretty much all of these people who would eventually make the movie Tremors would meet and collaborate. Um, so you got Brett Maddock and Ron Edward. Brett Maddock was the other co-writer of Tremors, and he actually had a degree in the English department. And the way that he got that degree is whenever he could, he would just be like, hey, can I make a movie instead of writing a term paper? And again, in in, a, in another crazy scenario, the teachers were just down with this. They were like, okay, yeah, sure, if that's what you think. And like whenever he could, he did that. And when he when he got the degree, he was like, I can either go to film school or I can go to business school. He was accepted into both. And uh, he went with, uh, you know, went with film school. And then uh, you have Ron Underwood. And Ron Underwood, who eventually became the director of Tremors, he did six weeks of medical school and then he left because he realized that his first love was cinema. And they all kind of met up and teamed up really, really early on. And, uh, you know, it's a really – it's a surprising thing to learn because especially in the Hollywood system and as you go on, it's very rare to have all of your collaborators on a very famous movie meet back in the 70s and still be friends. Um, you know, that, you know, you, you're so used to just hearing people kind of move off and, and go away and kind of going the separate ways. I mean, I, I, it's, it's not been a it nearly close to the amount of time between when I was in college and where I am now. And I don't talk to everyone I talk to in college. So it's, uh, it is, it's kind of a wild story. And, uh, it, they pretty much, they found out that they would all kind of worked really well as a team, um, especially S.S. Wilson and Brett Maddock, because they had very conflicting views and very conflicting interests. And those interests and views actually really worked well for them in terms of writing scripts. So Maddock was really good at, at doing dialogue, where Wilson was really good at just kind of plotting and making a plot. And they lived together and they the whole time. Uh, Ron Underwood did not live with them because he was married and he lived with his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, in 1974, Underwood actually made it fairly big when he, he did a documentary about hang gliding, which actually was picked up for distribution by Paramount. And uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big get. Yeah. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, exactly. Especially that early in your in your film school, because you know that was like about two years. That's it's pretty early, and that's pretty impressive. 
and you kind of compare that to ss wilson's first like student film uh maybe it's not his first but one of his big student films was a, a film called recorded live which is it, it's actually on the new arrow blu-ray you can actually see nice. this uh this special and it's a re- like this little student film this little short film is really fun and it's all about pretty much this is this uh, big pile of uh, it looks like it was like film tape that just kind of went mad and just kind of like starts killing people and kind of r- r- running amok. And it's all like animated and uh, is, is really fun and really quaint. And, and weirdly enough, it stars uh, a man by the name of John Goodwin. And again, another crazy coincidence is that man would would become one of the construction workers in Tremors. Nice. Um, yeah, he is the construction worker that gets the boulders that fall on him. He's not the one who gets dragged away in, in Tremors. He's the one mm-hmm. that has all the boulders fall nice. on him. Nice, right. Yeah, yeah, it's just, that's kind of crazy. Again, uh, the actual origin of the idea for Tremors happened when uh, Wilson joined up with the, the Navy after film school, and he was an editor in their film department. So he, the, he was working at kind of like a remote area called China Lake in, in Southern California. And because he had so much spare time, he would go for walks and he'd go for hikes and he'd kind of just get at the lay of the land. And one day he found himself on a rock and he just kind of had the idea for tremors. He, he wrote the idea and it just said land sharks on a piece of paper and he, and he put it in his pocket. And, and that piece of paper would come into play nearly 20 years later. Like, it's, uh, it's, 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 yep. it's all, like, really, really crazy. I believe uh, uh, his idea was just the simple concept of, like, what if there was a monster that was just, like, based off of, like, the ground. Like, you couldn't escape it. You had to, like, get to higher, some type of form of higher ground to escape it. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. That, that's pretty much exactly what it is. It's kind of, and again, it's like, you know, you, you think think of, oh, this is going to be like a, a Jaws ripoff, right? Like, you know, mm. you would you would almost expect to see the the title Land Sharks uh, as like a straight to sci-fi video today, mm. right? Like, oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's kind of wild what it eventually would become. So um, tongue-in-cheek that it doesn't actually try to be a competent movie like this movie, where like... It under like this movie knows where its limits are, and it still actually tries to be a good, like, genuine movie. Yeah, and exactly, exactly. Um, anyways, after after his time in China Lake, and and after they all kind of went off, they eventually uh, got back all together again in 1978 when they started to make educational films. And these educational films, uh, a few of them are actually, again, on that Arrow video release. And they are so, they are so charming and so much fun. Um, There's one all about the dictionary that has this, like, really fun uh, stop motion animation and a talking dictionary that is just, like, really well animated. And if I was a kid seeing it, it would would be, like, probably one of the greatest educational films I've ever seen. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, and and the other one that was called on that on that disc is a library report, and it's actually oh, nice. kind of like a, a episode of television, basically, because it's like twenty four minutes long, and it's um it you can see because this uh, short film eventually led to the ideas that would become the movie Short Circuit, 
Um, you can you can see it, but it's also very different um, because uh, it's not like a weapon. It's just like a the basically there's a, a girl who comes home to her house that's fully automated, and the one robot that looks after all the automation is this little robot, and he is pretty much you can see that he would become the frame of what. Uh, you know, Johnny Five would become, but he is still very prim and proper and be like, oh, I can't just write your library report for you and, and stuff, stuff like that. And she has to pretty much like teach him how to write a library report. And he takes him, she takes him to the library and stuff. It's all very, it's all like very cute and quaint and, and just like really, uh, you know, really makes me love, uh, love their uh, early films. So I really wish uh, old educational films like this were easier to come by because uh, they had a lot of creativity back in the day. Um, and, you know, I would have loved this as a young kid. Holy crap. Oh, yeah. Yo, yeah. I really wish. I don't know why they went uh, out of style. Um, so, uh, Wilson and Maddock, uh, in their spare time, when they were still working on these educational films, they wrote out a script for, um, you know, for Short Circuit, and while doing that, they eventually ended up with an agent, and that agent is Nancy Roberts. Roberts handled the financial side of the business, and she got them, like, a crazy deal on that first script. Um, the duo made $360,000. Ooh. Nice. And yeah, and the film was rushed into production three weeks after. And it's kind of crazy because they they managed to write this at just the right time because the movie Johnny Five had a lot to do with the fact that they really wanted to capitalize on the popularity of Transformers, weirdly enough. Um, the, the book... Um, seeking perfection really kind of uh, hammers that home when it's just basically someone is like, Oh, we want something with a robot so we can milk these kids. Cause they all love the transformers. Uh, that's basically how the film got made. Cause it got right in the front, the right hands, uh, which is kind of funny. And, and Ron Underwood was originally like intended to direct the film, but you know, once it, when it's, once it got sold for that much money, there was pretty much no, no chance of no chance of having him on. They, they there was like a a no rewrite clause actually given for this film, but that's it didn't it didn't happen. They they still kind of like rewrote and rechanged and changed everything. And one of the things they changed is the thing that is the reason why the movie Short Circuit does not hold up today, mm-hmm. and that is um, the Indian character. Right. Um, it, yeah. In the in the original script, he was just like a white dude. And um, they they completely kind of the director kind of completely kind of rewrote the character and, and made him into the stereotype that, that he is today. And, you know, it's a it's a pretty that's a pretty big mark against that movie, because, uh, uh, you know, have you seen Short Circuit? Yes, I have. What, what do you think of it? I think it's all right. It, the idea of it is charming, but I just feel like. As a full-on feature, like as a film, it, it just sort of falls short. Like, the ideas to it are really interesting, and I like them, and I think they could make to it uh, for an interesting movie, but the actual, like, movie and, like, film itself, like, just unfortunately falls short. Yeah, that, that's completely fair. I always think that the, the message of the movie that is so much, like, based off of, like, oh, be nice to, to all living creatures, and it has a soul, and you should treat it with respect 
just falls apart with their treatment of I also minorities. feel like there have been better movies. There have been movies that have done that message just honestly a little better. Like E.T., perhaps? Mm, actually, uh, funny you should ask this. I'd actually say The Brave Little Toaster. Oh, you know what? That's that's fair. That's fair as well. The Brave, Brave and Little that was a kid's movie. animated movie, and that movie gets really fucked up. That movie does get get really fucked up. To be fair, I was just trying to make like a really good uh, segue yeah. because after to after Steven Spielberg directed movie, so yeah, exactly. Because um, after Short Circuit, they started to work with Ambulin Entertainment, which is the company that Steven Spielberg kind of like made in the eighties and was just. It was going crazy. Like when they they were pretty much like rewriting like pretty much everything uh, that came into Amblin at that time, including another film that definitely does not age super well, uh, Ghost Dad, starring Ooh. Bill Ooh. Cosby. <laughs> Yay! Wow. Oof. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was an interesting time. They were basically really on the verge of just getting completely burnt out of the studio system in, entirely. Um, they even, at this time, they actually wrote the sequel to uh, Short Circuit. So they wrote Short Circuit 2, um, which, I mean, uh, honestly, I think Short Circuit 2 is probably like a more fun movie, but it still does not solve the problem that the first one has. Yeah, unfortunately. It puts him in a bigger role. <laughs> He's yes. in a big, like the the brown face is a bigger role in the movie, and it's like, oh my god, why? Oh god. Although it is kind of fun seeing the Johnny Five run around Toronto. Uh, there's yeah. one point. There's one point. No, where he no, goes no, a... Andrew. It's New York. Look oh, how yeah, New sorry. York it is. It's totally yeah, yeah. New York. New York. New it's York. totally not Toronto, Ontario. You guys. Definitely not. I have I have been to that bookstore that he goes into and he's like, need import, and he just like goes and crazy in a bookstore. Anyways, that's an entirely different podcast that no one will listen to. Um, <laughs> so they they kind of like went to Nancy Roberts and basically were just like, yeah, we're getting like burnt out. And she pretty much suggested that they flesh out an old script idea and they become the producers themselves so they have better control. And when they just kind of like brought all these ideas, I, I imagine it's probably like had like a, a portfolio or something. Uh, however, it was uh, Robert spied the idea for Land Shark. She said that she they should expand it and make, write into a treatment so that they could kind of like go and, you know, maybe pitch it. They, they intentionally chose a, a lower budget B movie for their first feature like that they were producing just so they could keep Ron Underwood in the mix because mm. they kind of they kind of threw him to the wayside and keep, um, honestly the whole crew in the mix yeah yeah well yeah exactly um and, and, yeah exactly because even people they they had in like short films in, yeah. in college eventually came by so it, it really did kind of give them a be better chance so they intentionally wrote tremors uh to have more of a 50s b-movie style and when i say they i mean that was ss wilson because yep. again maddock had did not have much inf interest in uh old monster movies because he was like a comedy guy and he kind of just thought these movies were silly and mm. uh and and wilson um you know he loved these movies but also knew that they had flaws mm. uh it's not it sounds like he'd be a great guest on this podcast honestly <laughs> that kind of summarizes the tremors franchise as a whole like these two yeah. writers and their flavors like 
these like their flavors like that describes tremors perfectly like it's one one person is about the comedy while the other person still wants to have this flavor of a a b monster movie like made in the style of the 50s like both those flavors combined into like a blender make into tremors yeah no exactly 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 and I, I and th- they did have that desire. S.S. Wilson wanted to harken back to old fifties movies, but he didn't want to fall into the same narrative shortcoming. So he didn't want like the women characters being written terribly, and like he didn't want the heroes to be some like buff humans and and just wanted them to be or like army people. guys. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, I think that actually was like a big. There was a big reason they did not want to do army di- army guys. Yeah, obviously, that's kind of the amazing thing about this movie too. None of the heroes are any type of authority figures. They're just normal people. Some people right. may be a little kookier than others, but they're all just normal people living living their normal life in this small little dank town in the deserts in Nevada. Like, Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. That's very, very true. And it's funny because um, they went through, there were like four different titles for this freaking treatment because they went from Land Sharks to Graboid to Beneath Perfection, and then the film was eventually released as Tremors. We'll get to the why that was changed at the last minute it's kind of funny that they actually had graboid since the start like the name graboid like that's a series name now like that's a canon name like that's in canon for all of the movies they are called graboids that's been there since the start like that's amazing yeah and it's kind of crazy because like you know getting into these these old movies like they don't really call like an an alien or predator right Mm. like the the species of predator is called the yatsha or the yatsha or however the fuck oh, yeah. people say it but they don't say that in the movie because it's it sounds silly right and and like i love that uh trevor's just goes all in and they they introduce it in a, in, a, in a really funny way um but when you were talking about you know the the push and pull of the two different t- ideas and tones it actually took them seven drafts to finally figure out the the proper balance between the the two of them and and because of that, they they kind of like decided that all of the comedy in the movie would be rooted in character. Yep. So they they didn't want to like uh, just have a whole bunch of one liners and all of that stuff. They wanted to kind of put everything into the movie, but have it more like natural as as the characters would react. And I think that's that's very that's very obvious <laughs> in the movie. Mm. Um, and and then they worked with Ron Underwood to get the film completely storyboarded. The storyboards, which were extensive, by the way, they ha- again, they have a, some of those on the uh, Arrow Blu-ray in one of the special features, and they're really interesting to look at to see how the, uh, the, the film evolved. But they were, they were done up by a gentleman not named Michael Davis, who would become a director of his own when he directed movies like uh, Shoot 'em Up. Have you ever seen Shoot 'em Up? Shoot 'em Up? Uh, no, I have not, but I've heard about it. I've heard it's fun. Yeah, it's a wild, wild movie. Uh, it, it's one of those things where I don't. Uh, it's it's kind of forgotten nowadays, but I do think it's it's worth going back to uh, just to get crazy Paul Giamatti. Like mm-hmm. uh, you got you gotta you gotta do that. Oh, definitely. Um, the the only issue is, um, you know, they had to make sure that they had somebody around that could help and get the strip in front of the right people because again they first they shopped it around as a treatment no one was interested they had to make it a full script now they had the difficulty of getting the full script 
into the proper rooms. So they needed pretty much, they needed like a, a godmother and somebody who could come in and, and help them. And that's where Gail Ann Hurd came in. Do you know who Gail Ann Hurd is? Uh, no, I do not. So she was, uh, at this time, she was still married to James Cameron. And she was the, the one of the producers on things like Aliens, The Abyss. And uh, she had started her own company called Pacific Western at this time. And they were oh, okay. focused on, on making movies for about $10 million or under. Uh, and get and and she would had a deal where she would make the movies and then Fox would distribute them. Um, and have you ever seen the movie Bad Dreams? Uh, no, I have not. No, okay, it's it's a really it's a crazy movie. Bad Dreams is like a 1988 movie that's kind of like you think it's a um, Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors ripoff, mm, but okay. it's amazing. But like it's crazy and amazing. But that was one of the first movies that she made. And, um, you know, that they uh, that kind of got her name in there and it wasn't a big hit, but it was one of those movies where it showed that she could make movies. And that was one of the starts of the of the company. Uh Um, So she first she had to go to Fox to pitch it, um, basically, because, again, that was kind of in her contract with Fox um, because they were kind of releasing the movies that she made. Fox passed on it. They went to Disney. Disney passed on it. And uh, Heard had only agreed to take the script to three different people. Uh, and luckily, the final pitch was to Universal. Uh, Roberts, uh, Nancy Roberts, knew Universal would be their best shot. And she put in a lot of work in forming the relationships with the upper echelons of Universal. Jim Jacks was one of them. And as the senior vice president of production and the head of acquisition, he convinced Universal to take a chance on the film. Can I, I pause here for a brief moment? Sure. It's crazy how stupid, complicated names in Hollywood get. Because um, senior vice president of production and the head of acquisition. There's got to be a simpler way to just... Yeah, to there, there has to be a, a cup, like a, some buzzwords or something that can <laughs> fucking simplify this. Yeah, they never do, though. Uh, they never do. Once you get to, like, a certain level of uh, of high in the studio, you have so many titles that it's really hard to figure out. <laughs> but Jim Jackson is apparently, like, a, a really good dude. because um, mm, he, he Yeah, because he, he left them alone and left them to their own devices and kind of fought for them when they needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really, really good. Um, so by 1988, it was officially a Universal production. Uh, and Ron Underwood was, uh, they got a deal with Ron Underwood to direct, and they said, hey, you got a minimum of two weeks to shoot before anyone could even think about firing you. So you will have two weeks worth of footage to def- defend yourself if that comes up. Um, they eventually, uh, they, they negotiated a thing called a negative pickup. Now that, what that means is when the movie was actually finished is that's when they would pay a a set fee for it. And, um, you know, that would be it. So they wouldn't give any money for the film as it was being made. They would, Universal would only pay for the film upon completion. Uh, which I thought was just was was interesting, mm-hmm. um, and it was filmed under the title "Dead Silence" because it was a non-union production. Oh wow! 
Yeah, and and uh, one one of the things is like um, this was really in the early days of the studios kind of doing more non-union productions, and unions would occasionally just completely shut down uh, a movie being filmed. I, again, again, for the right right reasons, right? Like there's a, a we're not anti-union here, but um, but in order to avoid that, they they made a pseudonym for the movie to to film it in secret. And Heard actually created a new company for this movie called No Frills Films, mm-hmm. um, which I've actually seen a few times on on various movies. And I and I for some reason I thought it was like the Canadian grocery store No Frills. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, I, now they're I making movies. What is this? Yeah, yeah. What are they doing? They make anime anime trailers, and now they're doing this. Oh my goodness. Good no, good lord. <laughs> So when it came to actually cast the movie, they had casting agent Pam Dixon. And weirdly enough, so John Cusack was the first pick for uh, Val McGee. What do you think about that as an idea? Yeah, that's strange. Like, especially with how much enthusiasm Kevin Bacon gives in his performance. It's hard to imagine anybody else but Kevin Bacon. Yeah, it's, it, it, that level of enthusiasm will, will be interesting when you get into it. But apparently uh, John Cusack said no because he didn't want to work with another first-time director. And he had ju- he had just finished say anything which he wor- when he worked with Ka- so he worked with Cameron Crowe on that so apparently mm. that was the reason. Yeah. Um, pa- Pam actually knew Kevin ba- Bacon because she worked in New York theater with him and suggested him for the part. Bacon was like not not really super happy about getting this film and getting offered this film uh, and basically because he had just had so many flops. Yeah. Recently. And he thought like, oh, wow, my career is over. I'm playing opposite to like uh, a rubber worm. Like, I can't believe this is where my career goes. But then he actually kind of like read the film and read the script and was like, well, you know, like one, he needed the money. Two, he thought he could have fun with the role. And believe me, it's obvious he had a lot of fun with the role. Yeah, he's great in this movie. He's so damn likable. Like him and Fred Ward are great opposites and they play great off each other. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's one of those things where like, uh, you know, the the film was a flop when it was, when it was finally released. And uh, Kevin Bacon kind of had, uh, kind of didn't like the film for a while and was kind of like, it had a sour taste in his mouth, but eventually he kind of revisited it and he said that the character kind of like stuck in his mind a lot. So Uh it's always a character he's wanted to revisit. Um, and, uh, we kind of got robbed that because they did film a pilot that I'm sad that never took off. I would have been down for that pilot. I mean, I would have preferred a continuation of the sci-fi television series, but I would have been down for this new Kevin Bacon Tremors TV series. Yeah. Apparently they, there's, um, there are special effects that haven't been completed yet. That's why it's never seen the light of day. But I say like, I would even take it in like the unfinished firm. Yeah. Same. I would like to see how this would have been progressed as a TV series. Like, would Val yeah. have to go fight other monsters? Like, what would happen? Like, yeah, yeah, it would have been, it would have been a very interesting. It was apparently like very character study focused, so it would have been, would have been quite good. Um, his wife was actually pregnant during the making of this film, and like very noted very actress Kira Sedgwick. Yeah, Kira Sedgwick was very, very pregnant, and she would be on the set with them this entire making of. Uh, and his mom had been recently diagnosed with cancer, so he had like a lot Ooh. on his on his mind when he was when he was going into this movie. Uh-huh. Um, and originally, he wasn't going to be 
uh, beside Fred Ward. They're originally, the studio wanted James Garner for Earl no. Cassidy. I, 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 I don't see it, no. No, no, and they went through a few other people, like, they, they thought of maybe well, I just Michael. feel like he'd be too old for the role. Like, I get that Val and Earl have a bit of an age difference between each other, but it, it's not that drastic. Like, it's not that drastic of an age difference. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're uh, completely right. Like, it's, uh, it's a bit too much in that regard. And also, like, it's really hard to imagine anyone other than Fred Ward doing yeah. that part, uh, because like he was he was such a good, uh, good role uh, for sure. They apparently they thought about Michael Caine was one of the ones that they thought oh, of before they no. got Fred Ward. No, and I was no, like, no, 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 no. What? Like, I mean, the only like he kind of was like this in Jaws: The Revenge, where he was like kind of like an lovable oaf, but mm. like it would not have worked in this movie no. because. Are you going to believe Michael Caine's a cowboy? I'm not. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't see it. I just don't. No. No. Uh, and, and apparently Ward and Bacon, like, became, like, great friends on the on the set. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ward was, like, super well-read. So he, uh, he would always be recommending books to Bacon and giving him life advice, kind of just like, uh, like Earl Bassus and Valentine McGee. So that, mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. Nice. Reba... Reba had never done a movie before. She was really excited because she had been told that James Garner had the role of Earl Bassett. Ah. But, yeah, he didn't. That wasn't the reason why she went on, because she actually really just loved the script. Um, Reba talks a lot about how much she has a lot of affection towards Tremors. And uh, the only reason she didn't do the sequel was just because of scheduling. It wasn't because she didn't want to. Because it's such like, a shame because she's she's really damn likable in this movie. She's great. Her performance is good. She's really likable. It's such a shame. I would have loved to see her come back in part two because that's like one of my favorite movies of the series. Yeah, exactly. And it, it was like one of those things where like uh, you know she she was on contract with Universal in their music department. And uh, she was sent the strip by Pam Dixon. And basically the fact that Pam Dixon like kind of worked with Robert Altman in her early days uh, pretty much got the idea going for Reba. Because, you know, uh, Robert Altman did films like Nashville, which had like a lot of uh, musicians turns actors and stuff like that. So it's kind of a kind of a crazy kind of a crazy thing. And, and what's funny, though, is like Reba was like, really she she had grown up on a farm right like she was like an actual country girl so she knew how to to ride horses she she knew proper gun safety and she had how to how to, how to handle that stuff and you know she was really down to just do whatever they want like they they asked her like hey uh are you okay with not wearing makeup or as much or whatever and she was yeah. like yeah no that's fine yeah, whatever just be aware there's a whole bunch of freckles under here but mm. yeah i'll gl- gladly do it she is a redhead yeah exactly and uh she actually has one of the only improvs in the entire movie um at near the very end of the movie when uh michael gross uh has his like uh who made you in charge fearless leader and he's mm-hmm. like in in uh kevin bacon's face um and she goes i he's just an asshole i know i know he's an mm-hmm. asshole that was apparently all improv which is like which is great and they, yeah. they were like really surprised because they're like look most of this movie was like very strict as far as the the, the, the plot and the, the words go like they were being strict but like most of there wasn't a lot of improv and that was mm-hmm. one of them so um michael gross speaking of him mm-hmm. um 
he had this was right at the end of family ties yeah so in in family ties he is like this very left left leaning oh yeah definitely yeah left leaning liberal father and to go and play in a completely complete exact opposite uh with the tremors yeah exactly it, it was crazy he like literally left the set of <laughs> the family ties to come to the the uh, the film to start working on it so as soon as he ended that show, he started that one. And then it was a studio that wanted gross in there because mm-hmm. the, everyone knows like, eh, I don't know about this. And, uh, you know, he made a huge impact and if, uh, and he made uh, everyone be immediately convinced that he would be this character. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's funny because uh, gross goes like gross uh, says that it was just like a normal audition. Like there was nothing special about it. But Ron Underwood insists that he, like, jumped on the table and was like, there's graboids in the room. There's graboids in the room. And, like, convinced everyone that there was graboids in the room. And, like, it's to the point where, like, Underwood still insists this, like, five years later. Because I, there, he, there was, like, an interview in 2015 where he said it. And then he was, like, confronted about the fact that Gross had a different opinion about this, like, like last year. And he would just basically be like, uh, no, no, no. I remember it like this. I remember it like this. I think that's how it happened. So I just thought that was kind of it's kind of cute it's one of those uh you know who knows but it's fun either way um gross said he would not promote the nra so he did not want like there should be any nra bumper stickers or anything like that and he always makes sure that he only points the gun at monsters not at humans and there's a whole bunch of behind the scenes of just gross meeting fans and he 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 says this line to people like a lot, like so. Or someone would be like, "Oh man, I love Burt Gummer," and he's like, "I know, but you know, he only shoots monsters, right? Yes. Like, gun safety is very important." And like, I think I think because I always Burt Gummer is a really interesting character in these yes. films because in all n- normal ways of life i would think that i would hate this character and would hate everything that he stands for mm-hmm. and gross brings a likability to him oh but... definitely he's extremely charming and likable like he's really good in this yeah and and there's but and there's also like a lack of sinister nature because a lot yeah. of times when you have this type of people or per- people in real life like there's a very sinister motivation behind it mm-hmm. and for Gummer, it just seems like he wants to be left alone. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's like his whole thing. He just leave me alone, <laughs> which just makes it uh, makes him uh, pretty good and tolerable. And uh, it's amazing that he's he's ran a, a a seven movie series. Yeah, it's no wonder why he came back for the sequels. Like he's such a good character. Yeah, exactly. Um, when they cast Finn Carter, so Finn Carter played Rhonda. She was mm-hmm. not a traditional romantic lead. But Rhonda was like, no, she is, like, so good. She is exactly what I want from Rhonda. Yeah. We have to bring her in. Uh, and she is great in this movie. Oh, yeah, I love Finn Carter. She's excellent. Her performance is really good. She's charming. She's a likable, like, like you could, like, she actually feels like she is her job. Like, she knows what she's talking about. Like, But at the same time, she has, like, this na- naivety of, like, being a student, and it really works. Yeah, apparently some of the naivete kind of, like, mixed through the actual making of the movie. Because she was kind of like, well, I'm taking this movie really seriously. Like, why are some of these people playing it over the top? And it was just, like, a, an interesting, like, even the actors kind of had to, had to get used to the tone, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. 
one of the craziest people in this movie is Ariana Richards, who is pre-Jurassic Park. Yep. It's just like a little girl. And uh, she was like, oh, there was 50 other girls being cast and she was chosen. Uh, she managed to get chosen. And they asked, hey, do you know how to pogo stick? And she's like, she did the uh, classic actor thing, which is lie. <laughs> and she <laughs> learned how to do it <laughs> as soon as she got the part. And it just, uh, you know, it's really fun and and funny to see her in this in this role mm-hmm. um because this is in a lot of ways um it tremors is one of the last truly practical effects only movies it came out at such an interesting time like tremors was a was not only released in 1990 but it was released in january at the very beginning of a decade that's amazing this is a january movie like that's so weird that's so weird in hindsight like that's so damn weird yeah that's that is very weird and like to think it's kind of like shoveled right in between um you know abyss the abyss in 1989 which Mm -hmm. used a lot of a lot of cg Mm. and then terminator uh terminator 2 in 91 which used a whole which used cg as well and that really kind of got the the ball moving and you know jurassic park was really the turning point where like cgi would be a normal place not to mention both this and this tremors and jurassic park both share a lot of similarities with each other and they're both universal movies and they shared an actress yeah very true very true and like uh, again uh, richard ariana richards like came back for tremors 3 like that's that's really cool oh definitely that's awesome yeah, so it's like one. It really kind of shows that that, that this is a really good set uh, on there. Um, Tony Gennaro, who also came back uh, as Miguel in Tremors Three, but in Tremors One, he was basically hired on the spot because Ron Underwood loved another movie he was in called The Milagro Beanfield War. I've never <laughs> heard of that movie, but yeah, I want to watch it. I want to watch it now. Sounds same. like a cool movie. Um, Victor Wong's is a fascinating uh, person. I had no idea. Did you know Victor Wong was the first ever Chinese American reporter? I did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah, and he covered the Vietnam War protests and and was like in like a very heavy news uh, period. And then he had a bout of Bell's palsy, which left him partially paralyzed. Um, which is why he always had a, has a very unique presence on screen um mm-hmm. and he basically had to go into he went into acting after that because he couldn't he couldn't I, I don't know if he couldn't do the news anymore or if he's act to step down or he decided yeah. that he would want to do something else but and i grew up with a lot of victor wong's performances i mean i i mean i'm i'm a 90s baby i grew up in the era of going to the video store and renting videos and all that type of stuff i mean i grew up with the th- three ninjas movies i grew up with all of those so i grew up with victor wong as an actor so yeah exactly and i and i think in in wong's credit when the original character in tremors was written as a vietnamese Uh uh, person running the running the shop and wong basically just said hey i'm I'm not vietnamese can we change the name and can we change the ethnicity of the character yeah just so i'm not like kind of like playing somebody i'm not and i uh-huh. that's like that is like really respectable you know like uh-huh. um that's uh that's something where i wish like a lot of white people would do that you know yeah I mean? same. <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> now let's get into the effects because again the effects is that like a very is in a lot of really interesting uh starting points um so alec gillis and tom woodworth jr had just formed adi studios after leaving stan winston Studios. so the last stan winston movie they did was Pumpkinhead, and they decided to go off on their own because it basically they said that uh, there was an interview with Gillis, and Gillis was like, well, it seemed like Stan Winston said he was wanted to only do Stan Winston movies from then on, and I kind of wanted to do more stuff, so we kind of just went off and did mm-hmm. a, formed our own company. But, like, it wasn't even, like, a, a mean-spirited thing. Uh, Winston literally recommended them after he talked to Gail Ann Hurd. And, mm-hmm. of course, Gail Ann Hurd had experience with Stan Winston due to the movie aliens oh shit yep and uh this ADI comes back did... around what yeah yes it does and, and it's not gonna stop there's some more aliens people in here um adi when they accepted the job they had like a they they would intentionally like meet the producers and everyone at like coffee shops and stuff uh-huh. because they didn't have a studio like they didn't have anything so as soon as they got the job, they had to rent a studio space, and they actually rented space from K and B Effects, which is like nice. Greg Nicotero's effects shop. And, and Gillis at the time was like, you know, I, I guess technically there are competition, but none of us ever felt that way. And they even helped us do some of the sculpting for Tremors. So mm-hmm. nice. Uh, yeah, so it was really cool. And uh, <laughs> the script did not describe the Graboids in, in 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 a lot of detail. It was kind of vague. Like the only thing they had was like uh, their their beaks open up like an orchid. Was like one of the only descriptors oh, yeah. for it. And the first time they made the creature, uh, it looked like a big old penis. Like it was. <laughs> it looked. <laughs> It looked very phallic because so well, the, the original creature they like they, they looked like a circumcised penis to be honest because they were like oh this is like it would have like a fleshy membrane to protect its head so like if you look at there's like concept art where you can see it and it, it like legitimately a hundred percent looks like an uncircumcised penis. Um, <laughs> In that original uh, idea. And apparently Gail and Hurd saw that and was like, we are not doing that. You need to change that because that is a penis-ass penis. Wow. They have a lot of pro- – people have a lot of problems doing snake monsters because if you go back and listen to our episode on uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors, um, they had the exact same problem when they made the first Freddy uh, Freddy worm for that movie. is like it looked like a giant penis. Uh-huh. Um, now, to be fair, I mean, I would I would have assumed making that, I would be like, well, isn't that the point? Like, this is what Freddy yeah. But anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you hear it again and again and again. Freddy is a monster. Oh, yeah. Freddy is a terrible monster. Yep. Speaking of monsters, they built a large graboid head. If you see this graboid head, it's huge. It's like a little, like, it's, it was eight feet long, and it had a whole bunch of, like, levers and pivots that they would use in order to make it open. And it, it has, like, saliva mechanisms. And it is a really complicated and really cool-looking creature that has a lot to it, which I'm re- always really impressed when, when I see it. And they it only really made one hero creature which is what like the screen use creature because again this was a pretty low budget movie so they didn't have a lot of 
money to do this. And they what they do is they did a lot of the effects on location when they could. That's another thing that just blows me away about this movie. Like, it's budget and, like, just how fucking good the creature effects are in this movie. And, like, you can never tell when certain scenes are being used by miniatures or, like, the puppets or, like, the full-on giant worm monster creature effects. Like, that that's so... Uh, that Like, it, everything looks amazing. And it looks so good for its time. And it's aged so gracefully like it's just so good for its budget that's outstanding oh yeah i 100 percent agree like uh you, there are things that you don't even realize are miniatures like in the the one scene where uh, they're on the top of the rock and there's a shovel like that in uh like val is like poking with the shovel uh, to see if they're still there mm-hmm. and that's a miniature shovel they when they, they throw the shovel on the ground and then the graboid like collapses on it that's mm-hmm. a miniature and like you're like what? And there's like a bunch of scenes during the fishing sequence uh, at the very end of the movie where there are miniature graboids uh, eating like miniature bombs, and I'm like, what? Like I thought all of that would have been done on on the, on the camera. You can't but, like, the re- honestly. You can't tell. Like the camera work is so good too. Like they know exactly how to zoom in and like not overly zoom in. You can still see details of everything. The ground, like the like the comparison shots are so good too. Like. Nothing ever looks like overly zoomed in or zoomed out. Like you can't tell those are miniatures. Yeah, no, I, I, exactly. Um, for the for the actual creatures, they would have to like to do uh, when anything they did on site, they would have to like pretty much build like giant pits. Yeah, and then have like four to five operators inside the pits, and like the issue was they could really only do like one take with those creatures because mm-hmm. uh, as soon as they moved, like the all the mechanics and everything just got covered in sands and grit and they had yep. to clean everything to make sure that it would work. Um, one of the more simple things they did to, to get some of the, some of the shots is they made hand puppets of the tentacles. Um, so uh, th- they, there are sequences where, you know, I, I, you can't really tell, but like there's actually like a hand puppeting the tentacles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are often done by Tom Woodruff Jr. Like that's how much of a low budget it was. These people run the effects studio and they're the ones out there actually doing a bunch of this stuff. And it's amazing how good the movement of the hand puppets are that they don't look like, like they don't look or like they don't look or feel like a hand puppet. Like they just look like, yeah. like a, a, a tentacle, like a tentacle moving. Like that's a amazing right because they they do have like different devices because like there is a device that is like a pulley articulated tentacle that they could control with like a series of levers and stuff like that Mm. but you can never tell when that's in play and when the hand puppet is in play and i think that is again really really impressive um they they if they needed the the creature to like break through wood or floors they would put it on like a railroad track and like just like ram it through um and some of those they, every time like you see a character like physically interact with uh, one of the creatures that is obviously done in camera if it's not if it's like a anything where you cannot see another human then that is most likely done in miniature but the problem is they're so seamless the only time you really can tell is the one green screen shot, which is in that sequence of uh, Bert's uh, basement. And that's like for one scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was the only green screen shot. So, yeah. Um, it was it was three and a half hours to drive from L.A. with the puppets. So they had to be taken back to repairs often. 
and the production coordinator by the name of Kristen Carr Stubes had to hire somebody to kind of like ride with the creatures during the drive mm-hmm. uh, in the back of a pickup truck. Yeah, nice. <laughs> the The miniatures were done by the Skotax, which is Robert and Dennis Skotak, and I believe it's uh, Robert's uh, or one of their wives. Um, she was also involved in the in the production, and they actually worked on Aliens as well with doing like huge miniatures on that movie. Um, and they actually had to incorporate their production in order to do this movie because uh, basically it was like, oh, the herd was basically like, this is a universal property. We can't just like hire you out as, as like a uh, freelance. You need to have a company. And then they formed their company. And all of the, the miniatures were done at a quarter scale, which is pretty, pretty impressive. Um, they were on site. The Skotax were on site during the entire filming, and they took a lot of photography just so they could match up things like cloud cover and like lighting for the miniatures. And they had a man by the name of Rick Richet painting 15-foot-long backdrops in order to make sure like the miniature skies look exactly how they were in the pictures and, and mm-hmm. everything like that. Uh, and in, in that aforementioned uh period of gummer's basement they had to make around 125 miniature items in that scene i i even watching this movie on like blu-ray i still could not tell those were miniatures like that just damn it that's so good like that's god that is so good like just that entire sequence is just Still blows me away. Yeah, because what they did the the start the sequence starts with a large puppet ramming through the wall where you can everyone's in there, and then it goes from pretty much all miniatures. There's like a scene where one of them like gets wraps around yep. uh, Michael's uh, leg. Yeah, and almost gets him. Rebus saves the day, guns the tentacle down. Like even that is good. Like even oh yeah, that's that's yeah. amazing. And and that was obviously not a miniature, but everything almost everything else in that sequence was uh-huh. and uh it, it's really really impressive because they had to do things like uh you know uh-huh. they, they had a miniature pepsi can in certain shots like it was nice. uh, truly truly they had to go next level um and again that sequence is, has the only use of green screen of the higher film to do the, the death of the final graboid was a giant miniature that's amazing yeah because they 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 actually made a whole miniature cliff say in it sailing off the cliff like that's so impressive especially when you get to see the gut show as it crashes into the rocks like oh that's so good yeah apparently they they had to do it nine times because it wouldn't explode they had actually made the prop a little too uh, sturdy, well, and they like needed to get it to explode. And hey, man, when it explodes, oh yeah, you get to see a big guts show. And reminder, this is a PG thirteen rated movie, <laughs> rated PG thirteen yep. guts explosion. <laughs> After doing all the initial miniature work, they were hired again um, to do even more work, as Universal thought that they would need a few more extra scenes of the graboids. So things like the graboids kind of like doing things like a whale where it would like come in, come up in the ground and like go back in uh-huh. and things where it like rams, the Nestor's trailer. Those were all done uh, after the, the principal photography had been finished. Nice. Um, the optical effects were done by Fantasy II film effects. Uh, they would add things like extra dust effects, extra bullets that would hit during like the basement sequence. And Brett Mixon did some matte and rotoscoping. Uh, the biggest uh, thing that you can see what they did is in that sequence where the uh, tr- 
the car that the doctor and the doctor's wife uh, goes the the car is supposed to like sink into the ground and um, just completely disappear. Yeah, great sequence. Really oh, great. Really great. Se- Probably the scariest moment in the entire movie. Like. Oh, yeah, Easily definitely. the scariest moment. That's a great sequence. So good. And apparently in the original script and in like the original planning, the whole like you were supposed to see the, the car go in and go down and go foom, 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 foom. And she was originally supposed to like get out of the car and like went, get on the top of it and it was slowly supposed to sink. Oh, but, wow. Yeah, it was it was a very complicated Holy shot. Crap. But uh, the effects did not work. Make it even scarier. Okay, nice. That's where the fifties, the fifties B movie effect comes in, like that type of a good scare sequence. Yeah, exactly. It, uh, it was like one of the final nights of shooting, and apparently the guy who was in charge of the physical effects was just like, "No, I'm not. This is fine." Mm. And they they had to get they had to do the scene where there's like the matte painting and with the animation of the lights that are like up in the air that slowly disappear. That was all done pretty much um, when they got the knowledge that they couldn't do what they originally intended. And it looks really, really good on the film. The entire town was built from the ground up. That's amazing. Which is crazy. They did a great job. Like, the buildings look so old and dusty and fucking just wretched and just, like, this is this looks like it's been around for fucking centuries. Like, good lord. Like, and everything inside the building looks great, too. Like, that looks exactly like a town hall common, like, convenience store. Like, there's the little shelves full of mini, like, little random mounts of groceries. Uh, the, the old Pepsi machine. Like, the, 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 the you know, the one, the one that makes the noise and attracts oh, the yeah. graboids like like that looks like an old as hell pepsi machine like oh god like the set does even the set design in this movie is so good yeah and evo cristance who is a pro- production designer really did next level work there are some things where he would go and he would just like buy he would go down the road and he would buy somebody's trailer off of them or their old rundown cars so they could fill the junkyard with scrap there are certain buildings that he would find in la and he would have it dismantled and then re-put together out near the shooting location which was near lone pine california and um you know if they, they originally when they built this entire town they didn't, uh, you know, there it wasn't act. There was no actual fan foundation, right? So mm. when wind or anything would come up, it could like just completely move the town. So they eventually had to start tying everything down. There was apparently there was a particularly windy day with a bunch of dust devils that completely changed. Oh, yeah. You can tell this was all filmed in an actual fucking desert because guess what? You've got desert weather. You've got dust devils. You've got windstorms. You have the fluctuation the temperature differences in during the day and night because guess what it's gonna be hot as balls in the day and it's gonna be freezing at night yep yeah pretty much pretty much and cristante like even did things like when there is that sequence of the construction and the constructor people the sequence where they're actually like hammering in the road with the jack and hammer jack and hammer <laughs> that's not what it's called jack, jack and hammer, hammer. <laughs> but uh when they're doing that sequence um there is uh an entirely fake surface on that like they they kind of like did like a fake pavement and a fake surface on that entire road so that they could do the deconstruction things and making it look good and they uh, gristante also had to make an aqueduct 
that scene where the like the the graboid rams into the side of the aqueduct and dies mm -hmm. like that first time you get a really good look at it mm -hmm. that was not an actual location they had to build that entire thing from scratch nice which is crazy um the the roof um where like you kind of get uh when they're on Chang's uh market and the roof kind of starts collapsing and kind of like going all crazy when they're like really kind of messing up with the 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 set uh that was all done on site at the actual desert and not uh, not at reshoot or done anywhere else and it was really just done with a whole bunch of springs and coils and it was e easy to reset and easy to set off and uh, they even designed the water tower to be collapsed, but they couldn't get the okay by Universal to collapse it. Uh. Um, and Cristante was uh, apparently very bummed out about that. He was like, oh, I built this to collapse. Um, the, there's other lo-fi things. Like the thing that I guess I just never thought of this, but it is crazy that the, uh, the Graboids going through the dirt was just them digging trenches, putting a bunch of, like, boys in there, like, which is, like, a big old thing that you normally would yeah. see in the water. Oh, yeah, definitely. Seeing seeing a buoy and doing it, like, using those, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, and they would just fill it, fill the little trench up with a bunch of dirt and then just drag it on with a tractor, and that would pretty much be what they would do, and it, and it looks really good. Um, there was a there was a bit of a confusion and a bit of a conflicting reports as to that scene where the boards are like kind of like flopping up as they're doing the run after Rhonda has to take her pants off. Um, that sequence. Um, there was one actress who said that was just people who were underneath just running around with like a board like a a stick to stick up all those boards to chase them, and there were the another. Uh, the press kit, the original press kit and the commentary by the actual filmmakers say they just used the boy, the boy uh, as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, it's hard to tell. Maybe maybe both happened. Maybe it was kind of a, a, a maybe there was like one scene where they did it, one scene where they did this way. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Um, but the, the, the original film was shot in 54 days. That's also impressive. Like, yeah. a pretty solid shoot. Like, not too overly long, not too overly short. I'm impressed it didn't go, like, over schedule. Because, like, with dealing with all the animatronics and the puppetry, and, like, especially to how uh, the Graboid monsters were, like, filmed. Like, having to dig the trenches and like, properly film it moving and stuff, like, that's, 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 that's seriously impressive that this didn't have, like, a more hellish shoot. Like, that's so impressive and so good. Like, the cogs seem to go pretty smoothly in this. That's really impressive. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just flabbergasted. I'm just... Yeah, it's, it is kind of amazing. Um, the, the, the first day of shooting, though, they had snow. Ah, well, once again, desert weather, you know. Shot in the desert. There's a there's an outtake that you can actually see, uh, like Val and Earl driving, and it's just completely interrupted by a bunch of snow. <laughs> Alexander Grubinsky was the director of photography, and he said it's one of the most stressful films he ever made, uh, oh, just wow. because the continuity of light was extremely difficult. Uh, there was a very limited time they would be able to get each shot. And uh, if an effect would go wrong, it would take a long time to reset it. So it was a lot of stress. Um, but he did actually propose to his girlfriend, who was uh, the other the film's producer, Ellen Corlett, on the film. And he apparently proposed to her on the rock that uh, you see Rhonda and Val uh, sleeping Aww, on. How sweet! Movie. And uh, she said yes, and uh, they got they they got it they got together. That's 
that's so sweet. Oh, my goodness. And they're still married to this day. Aw, that's so awesome. Yeah, in the 20, in the 20, uh, sorry, the 30-year retrospective. Yeah. My let's, God. Let's been... remember, hey, let's also remember this movie just celebrated its 30th anniversary. What a, man, what a milestone. Yeah, truly. And it, it, they did a, a, a documentary to commemorate that and they are together and they're still married. That's wonderful. They, in order to get the, the, the sequences with the, um, the, the the point of view from the graboids, they used the thing where there was like a camera at the end of a pole. Yep, apparently dubbed Pogo Cam. Yes, it's a bugged Pogo Cam. It's a very weird, it's a very weird thing. <laughs> nice. Um, S.S. Wilson, who would uh, direct the sequel, he actually w- uh, was a director on this, but he was a second unit director. And Virgil ha- Harper was the direct second unit director director of photography and he would also go on to work on a bunch of the tremor stuff afterwards uh-huh. and they were pretty much uh just set to only do special effect sequences like physical uh-huh. effect sequences like explosions and things like that and the fs coordinator was one who pretty much said hey you guys are doing that so lisi romanoff uh said that they would uh, just basically second unit is only focused on this the the only reason that uh there is an atlanta hawks hat is because they had a deal. So that's the only eh, reason. Nice. That's the only reason. It's kind of funny, too, because I'd never take Bert as a kind of a sports guy, to be honest, but I'm like, okay, if he really has a home team, all right. Yeah, exactly. I think they, they in like very late sequels, six and seven, he has a Cubs hat on, eh, Chicago nice. Cubs hat. And they make <laughs> a joke out of it because like somebody's like, whoa, you changed your hat. And he's like, well, the Cubbies won, okay? They finally won. <laughs> um, and I think, I think Gummer is a, you know, sorry, is Michael Gross is a Chicago native. So yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> they also had to worry about actual rattlesnakes and scorpions. Yeah. Because again, it's Once a desert ass desert. Yeah, this is the desert. <laughs> so they had to have wranglers who would come in and make sure that nothing happened. Uh, there was apparently there was sometimes the, they would get near the food and someone would have to come and save them. And it was pretty crazy. Oh, God. Um, because it was like, a, again, a desert ass desert. They would have to pretty much every time they wanted to do a shot they could only do 180 degrees uh because if they wanted to do another shot like if they wanted to go hey look at this area oh look at this area they had to move everyone who was in the crew yeah and when they moved they had to get somebody to brush away all of the i remember and all hearing about this exact fact on the audio commentary on the beautiful blu-ray and yeah i'm just I'm trying to imagine it, like, I, I, I know uh, Ron really wanted to go for the 360 shot, just, uh, and nailing it, but I imagine just how difficult that'd be with moving the crew aside and getting them out of the shot and dusting all the tracks away to make it look untouched. Like, I just imagine how difficult that must have been. Right? It would have been, it would have been so, so difficult. Oh, God. Um... They, they did have to, so the land was amazing, because if you watch it, it's a very beautiful movie, mm-hmm. and they did only have to add, like, a few extra things, like, they, they wrote the pole vaulting sequence, but they didn't realize that uh, normal rock for animations are usually not like they are in, <laughs> in, in that scene, so they actually had to make a whole bunch of prop rocks for that sequence. Um, and the, the cliff, as we mentioned, was done in miniature when it was like a full screen and the, the graboid was falling out of it. But there was also a huge matte painting for like the opening where you see, uh, Kevin Bacon pee off of a cliff. There's actually no cliff. That's just a matte painting. Nice. Um, and the same when there, he's like running and just about to like leap off at the end. Um, that's also a matte painting. So kind of crazy. 
they all got a like the actual filming was like really nice because everyone got along really well Wonderful. and they would like they would completely take over the town of Lone Pine at night, like going out and drinking and going to all these places. They actually rented out the back room of, I believe it was the bar, in order to show dailies, and they would invite the entire cast and crew. So if you want to see the dailies, you can come and do it. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the issues were like pretty pretty minimal, uh, although it does suck that Kevin Bacon's eardrums got like really damaged during one of the gun sequences oh yikes Um, oh that's not that's not nice oh that's awful no no uh apparently that was a big worry um by reba too like when she was doing that because she's a singer and you gotta know all your sound you gotta have your sound stuff good for you like you gotta make sure all your sound stuff works with your ears i know apparently that happened to linda uh, linda hamilton during the filming of t2 uh and that oh that's so worrying that's awful yeah yeah and again again you got to you got to give prop to them that you know michael gross and reba McIntyre uh, fired so many blanks but you know it seems like uh, their hearing is still fine and reba is still uh, doing the croons so. yeah yeah good for yeah, her it, yeah good for her glad to hear it they eventually kind of realized they would need more money because they were kind of running out and they were a little worried but then again universal was like okay I've seen what you're doing here. We're going to give you a little bit more money. And that was when they filmed that final sequence where the, the doctor and his wife gets eaten by the old grabbies. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently when there's that scene where he first gets dragged into the, uh, the, the pit and she's like trying to help him and get him out mm-hmm. that they, the first time they filmed that, like, so basically like he was supposed to step over a specific location and it was like an airbag that was supposed to like slowly kind of like go deflate a little bit. So he just dropped down and it wouldn't be too too bad, uh-huh. um, but he completely fell through. Like uh-huh. it popped and just like completely fell through. He wasn't injured, but it was a bit of a bit of a surprise. Um, the, the the scene where you're talking about the the one with the the old Coke the sorry the old Pepsi machine yeah that was all done in a soundstage so nice recre- okay recreated all that into a soundstage because stage. that that during that sequence this uh, the set gets pretty destroyed like the graboid comes through the ground eats Victor Wong the insides of the store gets really destroyed up the bunch of shells get knocked over shit smashes through the windows you know like and as Val and crew are trying to escape, you know, they're all trying to escape the storefront. Like, that set gets pretty destroyed. And it, during the filming of that scene, that's when Kevin Bacon's son was born. Oh, so basically, how wonderful. Basically, there was like a, like, Ron, Ron Underwood was basically like, hey, as soon as your son's born, bam, you can go. You can mm. go. Like, we're not, we're not trying to, to screw you over at all. So it was basically, uh, it was really good though, because they were actually in LA for that scene, because they were on an LA soundstage. So it yeah. was actually kind of a blessing instead of. That's not that far off of a drive. It's three hours, so there you go. Go visit your baby. Yeah, exactly. So that's very nice. Um, And then um, when Chang actually gets eaten, Walter Chang gets eaten, they they actually did did a cast of uh, you know Victor Wong's leg. It's a good it's a good sequence. That's another really good horrific sequence. Like you don't really see that. You don't actually see like how a person is eaten by a graboid, and like oh my god, you get a full fledged sequence of him just getting swallowed hole and getting torn apart like oh that is a really nasty sequence yeah yeah exactly exactly um there was apparently a lot more f-bombs in the original script apparently apparently they didn't know that they could they could only use two in order to get a pg for 13 yeah like oh 
I guess I guess if I guess, I don't know when that would because I guess the PG thirteen was probably like only six years old at that that yeah time, that right? yeah like, at that point the PG thirteen was still pretty new yeah so the the exact rules is probably not as well known so I appreciate that this movie saves its f bomb for a very good sequence like it doesn't just throw it away like it's just something like someone just saying oh fuck off like no they save that f bomb for a really really good scene so good and I I always like I don't know I get, I I never question the use of we got two big mother humpers like i don't know why it just they they deliver it so naturally i never questioned yeah it. That, that that's never that never was an issue for me like i enjoyed it i thought it was funny like i thought it was just like town speak like southerners town speak in the middle of the fucking ass end of the desert like these are all just kind of weird people so their 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 dialogue might be a little weird and i'm like yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> they're all a little they're all a little eccentric they're in this gosh darn heat you know like you know they're gonna talk a little weird yeah well exactly exactly especially like burt gummer right <laughs> like especially if you notice this especially fred ward has this uh you, you notice a lot of what he's trying to put on as an accent in the very beginning of the movie during the opening credits when they're driving their truck back to perfection uh Fred Ward does the uh, very Midwestern accent uh, as he's saying the days of the week. Instead of saying, instead, you're thinking of today is Monday when I'm thinking of Wednesday, he says Monday and Wednesday. I'm like, that's so Midwestern. Oh my God. Ah, oh, Fred Ward, you genius. That's so good. That is you, so good. You, Little things like that again. Brilliant. You, just... you brilliant bastard. Good Lord. You are exactly. just, ah. You just notice it every, oh, notice new things every time. Yes. Every time. I love you, Fred Ward. You are fantastic. Thank you. So good. He's so good. Apparently, he just doesn't do interviews because, like, he's not on any of the. Because everyone shame. is like, he's fantastic. Like, we want to talk to you, and he's just like, I don't do it. I love Fred Ward. He's amazing. That's fair. They use that that final chase sequence of the the graboid like coming at Bacon in that last scene. Apparently, you use 140 feet of dolly track, and apparently That's... it wasn't enough. Wow! They gained, they gained up so much speed that it kept like going briefly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was pretty intense. So uh, that was pretty much the all the 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 shooting of the actual film itself. And then they had this case where they had to go get a test screening and they had to go and like let other people visit it and look at it. And uh, they were pretty much said, okay, here's some stuff that you need to reshoot. They didn't like the opening. Mm-hmm. So the original opening uh, actually has Edgar Deems and old Fred that are briefly introduced. Um, and he, like, there's a thing where like Edgar's donkey gets eaten. And it's right. Like and that. yeah. And Fred's farm, when they go investigate, uh, Fred's farm, uh, they find, uh, Fred's sheep have been torn apart. And then there's a pretty good scare scene of, uh, where they find Fred and like how yeah. they find him. Like, Oh, that's a really good sequence. Yeah. That's a great sequence. But apparently there's a li- little bit more with old Fred in the mm-hmm. opening and they kind of, they kind of just cut that one out. I'm I'm really glad that they 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 were forced to do a new prologue that would defend to be a definitive space movie, because mm-hmm. um, they wanted to make it like oh the graboids are aliens. I'm glad they didn't. I I really appreciate how much they don't focus on the like ironically they don't give that grand of an introduction to the graboids, and I really appreciate that as a monster movie. Like honestly, I appreciate that less is more. They they really do a good job with that. I appreciate that the opening of the movie movie really more focuses on the characters that's what makes them so funny and lovable in the first place like you get a really good introduction of val and earl like and i really like that's so good i love that i agree no
no, I agree. I agree completely. Because this 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 prologue sounds pretty bad, anyways. Like mm. there's like a coyote, and the coyote has like a dead rabbit, and then like, something interrupts the coyote, like a, a a thing falling to the ground, and then the coyote gets eaten. And there was so there was a bit of a a discrepancy between the book and some of the commentaries because in the book it says audience hated it because they used a dead rabbit yeah. in the sequence and in, in and it was like a it was a dead rabbit that they got from like a butcher like they didn't kill a rabbit yeah it was no like an of course already not. dead 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 rabbit they're not monsters but, right yeah no they're not monsters mm. uh, unlike some filmmakers believe me yeah no kidding. Yeah, some filmmakers will fuck up a rabbit. Don't yeah, yeah. Um, but um, th- they they say in the commentary they don't mention the rabbit at all. They say that it was the because of a coyote, like just because it was there was just a coyote and the coyote got eaten and everyone hated that. It seems to me more realistic that there probably was a rabbit that would have got people more upset than just mm-hmm. a coyote being. Uh, vaguely eaten off screen, right? Like mm-hmm. I think that probably would have been yeah. what it is, but who who really knows? Again, it's just a good. It's I always like to note those discrepancies and 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 mention both, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to short shift the idea. They also the original. Have you ever seen the original ending for Tremors? Uh, no, I did not, but I do know of it. I do know what happens. It's pretty. It's it's not bad, but it's basically just like they're 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 driving away, and then they like go to get their lighter, and like uh, they realize that they forgot their lighter, so they drive back to see see Rhonda. Um, and uh, the 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 when they reshot the final ending, which is Val going back and kissing Rhonda. Yeah, and it's a big epic kiss, and it's a big crowd pleaser, you know? Yeah, exactly. They um, completely had torn down the town at that point. So there was Uh basically, it was like an empty back, like behind them was completely empty. So they had to And it's just like two trailers. Yeah, they they really kind of had to get creative. uh, So I thought that was kind of fun. Uh, I would have never known it. Again, it was one of those things where you'd never know if you didn't know about the, uh, the original thing. The reason why they changed the final movie to Tremors was because they thought it would play better in Japan as it would be associated with earthquakes. Yeah. Universal was about to be bought out by a Japanese company, so maybe that's why. All right, so I heard. Yeah, so I heard about that. Yeah, so I'm like, well, maybe that's why. It's it's like a very weird thing because I get I don't know. I guess maybe I get, well, I guess of course monster movies are big in Japan, but mm. it's, it's a very weird thing. The the music controversy is interesting, the, right? Um, because of the original composer Ernest Troost and his original score, like yeah, a lot of his original score is still in there, but not all of it. Because there's about that they pretty much Gail and Heard saw the film, didn't think the score worked, and hired Robert Volk to rescore mm-hmm. much of the film. Right, he did about thirty to forty minutes of new of new uh, score. Um, and he was, he scored, he added things like harmonicas and synths to some of the mixes. Um, and you can kind of tell, although like it really, it still, it all works. Like I wouldn't have known about this split had I not read up on it, to be honest with you. Um, and on the interview, like the, they interview both composers on the Blu-ray. Oh, that's good. Yeah, and it's fascinating because you can tell that Ernest Troost especially has had like a lot of time to just kind of think about it. 
Mm-hmm. And he he's basically like, look, this I it was it was it was a sore spot when it happened, but he he doesn't say anything bad about Robert Volk. He doesn't seem mm-hmm. to have any ill will towards him, and he does kind of wish that at the end of the day it was like a shared credit. It was just like there was some disagreements as to how they would be um, kind of kind of credited and 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 things like you know agents got in the mix and that yeah. kind of just that's how everything happened hollywood hollywood stuff you know yeah and, and volk also says he's very proud of the work he did quite a bit different from his normal resume the guy scored all seven police academy movies good lord yeah and again i'm amazed that there was one thing that kept all those movies together like right like i can't believe that <laughs> there are so many i i actually have to say as someone who's not really a fan of the police academy movies i've seen the first one and thought it was just an okay comedy i actually really like the musical score for that first movie it's really nice there is like some really good scores yeah there's there's some really nice like well orchestrated music and it's like jesus for these dumb like fart sound effect comedies like (laughs) wow that's this is a way more grand orchestra than i expected for like these like oh here's a fart sound like there you go that's police academy movies you know like yeah it's but like the score is beautiful and it's the weirdest thing it's the weirdest thing it's really nice it's like okay uh the 80s when you're when your fart sound effect you know wacky comedy could get a grand orchestra as its movie (laughs) score amazing amazing so yeah, that was it. And then when they finally released the film, it didn't do very well. It made about sixteen. Yeah, million. unfortunately. Remember, uh, this was a January movie release, nineteen ninety, the first of the decade. Like that's so amazing to me. When when did January become a stereotypical dumping Dump- ground? Yeah, I wonder I, about that. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure exactly when when that is. Um, but the thing is. The movie killed it on home video. Oh, yeah, home this movie, vi- it's kind of funny how the sequels came to be, because, like, the sequels were exclusively home video. That was because, you know, home video killed it for this movie. Like, man, this movie did gangbusters in home video. Yeah, truly, and it was, it was really kind of a surprise to everyone, because, you know, there is a huge gap between the first movie and the sequel. Yeah, like, I think it's what is it nine ninety six is that yeah ninety yeah ninety six was Tremors two aftershocks uh it's yeah like man home video and cable TV really saved this movie because like oh, that's yeah. how I grew up with this movie I saw it on TBS a bunch like they would have it as like a weekly movie most of the time because it was such an easy watch it's PG thirteen it's a short little flick it's it's an hour and a half long like it's a it's a cool uh couple of minutes it's 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 a short easy watch it's a it's it's a fun watch. It's easy to get into as a movie. Even if you catch it halfway, you can still watch it and have a good time. Like, yeah, cable, like, the home video industry saved this movie, but, like, cable TV especially saved this movie. Oh, yeah, agreed. Like, there's a, in, in Seeking Perfection, there is a, uh, the, the, the artist and the, the writer, uh, Jonathan Melville, actually talks about how he first saw the movie on uh, home video. And he was in Ireland, right? So, like, nice. uh, you know, there's a huge, ride, wide-reaching oh, yeah. uh, impact of, of, of this film. And uh, it really, once they started doing the uh, straight-to-videos, like, they did for a while, like, there was another, tre- there was a Tremors movie last year. Yep. Right? Yeah. Like, Part 7, I think? 
Yep, part seven, Shrieker Islands. We've made it to seven movies. And you know what? I'll actually go to bat for a couple of the movies. Uh, I'll argue that they're still really fun, charming movies. Uh, part two especially. I think part two is extremely underrated. Uh, for such a, for such a low budget, you know, like straight to video movie, its ambitions are very high. Uh, the creature effects are awesome. Uh, the characters are still just as funny and charming as ever. They still have that charm, that B-movie charm to them. Uh, even without, you know, Kevin Bacon, uh, all the actors are great. Michael Gross is excellent. Uh, Fred Ward is still as charming as ever. And, like, the new characters are not grating or annoying at all. They're not copies. They're not XBs. They're just really funny, solid, charming characters. I, I really actually will go to bat for some of these later sequels, especially part two. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I kind of, I kind of agree. And uh, you know it's uh, it's it's kind of kind of wild how like finally in this thirtieth anniversary this film is finally kind of getting more uh, more of a, more of a respect from home video yeah. right like it, it made all of its money on home video oh definitely but, like the early DVDs and Blu-rays of this movie that was not great transfers they weren't really treated with much special features at all the first commentaries Ow. were the ones recorded this year. Yeah, uh, they even announced, they actually even announced the date for the director commentary with the producers and the, and the directors with Ron Underwood and S.S. Wilson and some of the staff. They, like, uh, Ron Underwood literally says the date, like, all right, this is the Tremors commentary for, uh, the, for June of the year 2020. And I'm like, oh my God, that's, I, I, it took 30 fucking years to do a movie commentary. That's heartbreaking, especially for this movie, a movie that deserves such a good that honestly deserves a good audio commentary like that's right. so sad it's so weird it's so weird and it's like it was for years like the only one of the movies with an audio commentary was tremors 4 i don't know why i don't know why i love tremors 4 to be honest with you it's one of the ones that i, it's I would a, really that, that one especially for being a prequel when come on let's be honest most prequels ugh, tend to ugh, ugh, thumbs down like tremors 4 is really damn fun and yeah. like hell uh, tremors 5 uh for a good being filmed a good decade and a half uh almost a decade and a half uh later past uh, part 4 uh the special effects in that movie have been very kind to Part 5. You really do get a new amped-up uh, creature feature of the new Graboids the, and the new monsters. Like, yeah, wow, they uh, they they really came to play with this. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's uh, it's kind of impressive because like that, that, those three movies are their own, like those new sequels are kind of their own little trilogy. Yeah. Um, and uh, let's six is bad, but seven is seven and five have some good parts. I like I I even like. Six I unfortunately have still not seen Shrieker Island, but I, I am very curious to watch it. I'm I'm extremely curious, and not to mention, I mean, and man, you really gotta do give it up to Michael Gross for carrying this character for thirty years and still giving it his all, like still giving it his A game and still just like really keeping it in like through several so many different sequels and a TV series and he's like still this character he's still great at it he knows how to do this character like man that's amazing 30 years later yeah no it's uh it is very very impressive and he's still even bringing new layers to the character even in those yeah. later sequels so oh definitely 
it's clear, you know, Gross could easily say no. He's he's in his seventies. He's yeah. he's got he's family ties. I'm sure has gotten them a lot of money. Yeah, I'm sure the reruns. syndication. I'm sure syndication was very kind to that show. Yeah, exactly. That's how um, I grew up with family ties. I was born in 1990. That was a like a full year after that show stopped being was ended production. Like, and even I grew up with it because of syndication. Yeah, syndication is very powerful in that those early days. Um, but with that, uh, do you have any more final thoughts about Tremors? And where can we find you on the internet, Kyle? Uh, sure, to, I guess, wrap my thoughts up and really just kind of give a little send-off message to this. Uh, yeah, I, I just flat out just love this movie. Like, I just, I, I love every second of it. I love every inch of it. I love every instance of it. I love Tremors as a franchise. I'm I'm still dumbfounded by how good a lot of the sequels are and how quality they are. Even with just being straight to video, they don't bullshit you. They don't they don't let they don't let it slide easy. They don't just like, oh well we're home video, so we're just gonna take a big dump and you know, you get, we got your twenty dollars, haha. Like, no, they still give you quality quality movies. Uh yeah, I, I love Tremors. Uh, every single time I watch Tremors, there's something about it that I there's something about it that I'm just like, oh yeah, oh no, I love this movie. Like, uh, there's something about it that reminds me why I love this movie. Like, like every single time I every single time I watch, especially the first Tremors, I love it more and more. Like every single time, it's like. I just, I find a whole new reason to love it. I love this franchise. Uh, I'm grateful that I watched it when I did. I'm I'm grateful that, you know, like I grew up with it. Uh, this, uh, it, and it's weird. I'm, I tend to be very picky about monster movies, but Tremors really works for me as a monster movie series. Like, this movie underst- like gets what I like about, what I like about horror movies and monster movies. Like, it makes you actually care about the human characters. Like, it remembers, oh yeah, you should actually try to give a crap about the human characters. Like, let's actually try to work on it. Let's let's work on the comedy. Let's work on the, the dialogue. Let's work on the, the character writing. Like, let's actually make you care. Like, it's this isn't just, okay, here's, here, we got your money, here's a monster, here you go piss off like no it makes you genuinely care about this this universe and i i am so eternally grateful for it i uh i can't wait to get my copy of the 4k blu-ray and just love it all over again you can find me online through either uh various social media sites on twitter and on instagram as chibi ufo you can find me posting just about random sorts of things horror movies queer stuff retro video games disability advocacy and those and far in between uh you can find me just uh posting my musings on those various uh websites perfect perfect thank you for joining us if you find yourself liking this podcast you can always follow me on app at Twitter at, at @winemovienerd or send us an email at milkshakesandmimosas at gmail.com. If you want to rate us five stars wherever you do podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated and helps out a lot. And you can also follow us on Patreon if you so are so inclined. Just look up Milkshakes and Mimosas. Thank you, and have yourself a great day. Goodbye.